0: Salaam, guys. I'm Mossin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Here's a snippet of what's to come.
1: Artificial intelligence, it can give us the answers to questions we never knew were possible. It can show us points of connection that we never knew existed. It is the most incredible, powerful tool that we have at the moment. And there's a lot of people who think the world's first trillionaire will be an AI trillionaire. I mean, do we need a trillionaire? I don't think we do. But, you know, this is the world that we live in.
2: Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru, or IFG for short. Mohsen and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, Alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So if you're looking for halal investments and Islamic mortgages or startup funding, check us out at islamicfinanceguru.com.
0: And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get me on Mossin at islamicfinanceguru.com and you can get Ibrahim on ibrahim at islamicfinanceguru.com. Enjoy the episode.
2: At IFG, we really value someone trying to run a halal business without dealing in riba. And we love it when Muslims bring something innovative to the table. And that's why we support Shropshire Hills-based Euro-quality lamb, the largest Muslim-owned lamb abattoir in Europe. And I've actually been there and they're doing something genuinely impressive. And it has infused within it the Muslim ethos.
0: What's special about Euroquality is that out of the 15,000 lambs they process every week, they only select a handful of the best breeds of grass-fed lamb for their home delivery service.
2: The meat is cut how you want it. English cuts, desi cuts, barbecue style. You just don't find this stuff at your local butchers. So order online at euroqualitylambs.co.uk forward slash shop and reference Islamic finance guru to get yourself a free masala marinade worth £4.50 and a YouTube recipe hijri calendar worth £5. Terms and conditions apply.
0: Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Millionaire Muslim Podcast. Omar Latif of We Are Asif. We were introduced by Bilal of Social Lipstick, who's a mutual friend of ours. And we met a few weeks back and had a really interesting conversation about, about you, about your startup, which is We Are Asif. And yeah, I thought it'd be really interesting for our audience to to hear from you, Omar so, why don't we start briefly with what you know? What is We Are Asif? What is it all about?
1: So, We Are Asif is a mental health technology startup. Um, it's backed by ten years worth of research, which I've personally done. So, I've spoken to over three thousand people who have either tried to take their own life or suffer from depression, anxiety. Um, to describe the main app, it's a digital community, peer-to-peer support. It's a community. It has tools in there to help people with their mental health, from behavioral change tools, gratitude tools, gamification, so games to help you relieve your stress and anxiety, amongst other things. Now, my background's AI, so underneath the platform we are building is an algorithm that uses voice recognition, neural networking, natural language processing... And a few other tools to track a user and then to look out for any anomalies in behavior. The idea is once we've got enough data um, in two years time, inshallah, that it will be able to predict patterns. Wow. So that's the main app in a nutshell.
0: We've talked about this a few times. I'm always overwhelmed by exactly what it's doing. Mm. And as I kind of understand it in a nutshell, it's basically the ability to predict micro changes in people's behavior in order to kind of stem a kind of a downward spiral in in mental health. is that accurate?
1: Yes, that is accurate. I mean when the company launches, it's not going to be as accurate as it will be in inshallah a year or two. with something like this, it's all about the more data we get, the more we can build it, the more we can analyze and keep working with individuals and groups in a nutshell. Is
0: what it does. Brilliant. And how long have you been working on this? Because I can't imagine that this is something that you just kind of rock up and start doing overnight.
1: Do you know what? That's a great question. It's been a labor of love. Um, The company was incorporated at the beginning of the year, we received our first investment a few months later. But the story goes way back to 2010. That's roughly when I started doing the mental health research, which all stemmed from a friend of mine who lost his life to suicide, and it was me that found him. So that was the beginning of the story of We Are Asif. Wow. And then the algorithm... There's actually a funny story about the algorithm. The algorithm was actually born from complete narcissistic purposes. And I mean that in, you know, I know this is a Muslim podcast and we should be talking about that. But it was literally to show off to my friends. That's how it started life. And um, it was originally just a voice recognition tool and it was just based on my voice. So it was a piece of code that would track the baseline of my voice. It would look out for anomalies in my pitch. And then it would play me music to counterbalance that. So in layman's terms, if I was feeling annoyed, it'd play me relaxed music if I was feeling...
0: And it picks that up automatically, does it?
1: It would pick it up automatically through my phone. But there was no science involved in it. It was just a bit of code to see if I could do it then to show it to my friends. But as things started to progress with the concept or the idea of We Are Asif, this algorithm as well started to snowball. Mm. And it was three years ago that I left my uh, full-time job to pursue this Mm. I've spent a lot of time researching and working with various cohorts so it's a little bit of a different story to startups In that I took a bit of a gamble and I just knew that I had to do something with this because I was sitting on technology i was sitting on research that could go somewhere Mm. for me this was a labor of love and it was something I was very passionate about yeah I would not recommend to do what I did to anyone. (laughs) Do not do it. Don't do it. Don't do it.
0: I mean, we've talked about this a few times, Omar, and it's probably an interesting area to delve into now. A lot of our audience are people that they want to do startups or they are doing startups. You know, they might be looking for investment or, you know, like me a few months ago, it might be in a full-time job and looking to quit their job. Mm. I mean, we've talked extensively about this. The audience probably know a lot of my views on this, but what would your advice be to, Anyone that's listening that is either thinking about doing a startup, um, whether that's kind of idea stage or whether it's actually a bit more advanced than that, what are your general thoughts and advice that you give to people? Because I'm sure you get a lot of people approaching you as well.
1: Yeah, I, I do get quite a few people approaching me, asking me to advise them on the tech side or just to be on the board of advisors because it will help with the credibility of what they're doing. Well, Honestly, I always say to people with a startup, don't do it. don't do it. I try to put them off as much as possible. And if you can still see they've got the fire then brilliant go for it because that's the biggest thing that you need the fire and the passion yeah because it's a lonely horrible place it really is isn't it it's mistake after mistake and the two analogies i always use it's spinning plates and putting fires out yeah and you realize very quickly you do not know a single thing (laughs) you might have your experience and your expertise in a certain area but you need to have multiple hats
0: i think that's absolutely right i completely agree with that And I think that a lot of people are under an illusion when it comes to startups. Somehow it's seen as glamorous, especially nowadays because there is quite a lot of funding out there but at the same time you have to be credible and your thing has to be credible as well Mm. in order for you to succeed so yeah and i I completely agree the advice i'm giving nowadays is that you should look for reasons not to quit your job Mm. and if you run out of reasons that's pretty much the time Mm. so yeah i mean just going back to your story and how you know you mentioned that this is something that you started initially just to impress your friends Mm. were they impressed
1: yeah i have a lot of techies in my peer group And one thing, I mean, this was about 10 years ago. We were always trying to outdo each other and trying to work on projects together. Interesting. We've got some really interesting projects that we were working on together. I know, strangely enough, I mean, I know that you're an ex-corporate lawyer. We were at one point trying to write AI to get rid of lawyers.
0: Brilliant. I think you should uh, progress that.
1: (laughs) Time. Time time, time with everything. But we're, we're starting to move into a new era, aren't we? And I think the new era is automation. It's AI, it's AR. And a lot of things are going to be automated now. And I think with anything people have to add a lot of human value to what they're doing. Absolutely. If they don't, yeah. their jobs are going to be going in the next 10, 20 years, which it's a new revolution. We had the industrial revolution, we had the data revolution, and now it's going to be the, what would you call it? The automated revolution.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. And you know, a lot of people, especially on the kind of politics side of things, they get quite head up about this whole automation they see it as we're going to destroy jobs and people are investing far too much money in this thing i take a much more pragmatic view which is that you know this is just another chapter in the story that is the the universe and if there are ways for us to increase our efficiency then as humans always do we'll find ways to adapt Mm -hmm. it'd be interesting to hear what you think on you know forget the tech side for a minute um Just the kind of political and societal element of automation. What are your views on that?
1: You've hit the nail on the head. This is just a natural evolution of us as human beings. Mm. There's always been an evolution of us. There's always been a new age that we're moving into, which has meant less jobs or people have certain control taken away from them. Uh, It's just the era that we're living in. There is a lot of politics involved in what we're doing though now. So I'm obviously in the AI field. And for me, AI, artificial intelligence, is the best thing we've ever done mm. as human beings. It's also the most terrifying thing that we've ever done and right. that we
0: are doing. Let me stop you there. So for the audience, Omar is ex-Google, yeah. DeepMind. Tell us a bit about what that means.
1: So in essence, uh, DeepMind were a startup who got bought by Google I compare them to NASA in the te- technology side of things. They've done one of the most prevalent and important studies and also one of the most incredible cases, which was the DeepMind AlphaGo project. It's definitely something that people should check out. It's uh, to do with the game Go. A Go, Chinese game, uh, 5,000 years old. It's said to be eight games of chess going on at one time. There's more combinations in Go than there are atoms in the universe. Wow just to cut a long story short, because I can go on forever about this, probably need (laughs) another podcast for this. DeepMind created an algorithm that beat the world's best Go player, which people said would not be able to be done until about 2030. Wow. This was done like 2012. That's mad. So, yeah, DeepMind do the artificial intelligence, all the cool AI projects that you hear in Google. That's Mm. DeepMind. Uh, Demis Habibi, who was the founder Of DeepMind. He's one of the world's leading figures in the AI world. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah, that's my past. I worked for them. I worked for them in uh, London. I also got seconded by Google. So I got to work in Silicon Valley as well. So yeah, some interesting, some fun times. I learned a lot. And it was a difficult decision to leave there.
0: Yeah, I can imagine because Google's renowned for being excellent in terms of how it treats its employees. What advice, again, because you know our, a lot of our audience are university students and so on and so forth that are looking at careers, and certainly for, for a lot of the high performers, mm. they might well be thinking about Google and, and so on. What advice would you give to young people coming up who you know, might be coders or, or whatever, um, who are looking at places like Google?
1: So Google's a little bit different to DeepMind in that people in Google refer to DeepMind as the nerds. Right. So we were the nerds above the nerds. That's how nerdy you are. Yeah. Do you know, my biggest advice is that people should always think rather than thinking, is that company good enough for you? Are you good enough for that company? Because mm. if it's that way around, they will do everything for you. Mm. But the biggest thing which we've discussed previously is do you have the hustle? Do you have the passion? Yeah. Myself with, what we're doing when i get cbs through yeah i don't want to see someone who's just done a degree and that so if you're a coder show me your github where i can see all your projects yeah. all the little solutions that you thought of you know you've been going through life you saw this problem you've created a solution
0: for yeah them. yeah
1: that's what i want to see 100%. not somebody who's just done a degree i mean i could you get those every day that's how you stick out showing that actual passion and finance it's, it's slightly unquantifiable but in the world of coding it isn't mm. let's see the projects that you worked on let's hear you talk about what you want to do and <laughs> how you think that this is the greatest thing ever to be a coder. Because I generally think it is one of the greatest things mm. in the world of coding because you can solve all the problems that we have. Yeah, And maths is, for me, the language of the universe. And so when you get to use maths and coding, for me... It's
0: um, a dream come true. Yeah,
1: it's a dream come <laughs> true. It's a, dr- a dream not many people have, but yeah, it's a dream come true.
0: It's a very niche dream. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting you say that. I was having a conversation, I think, probably a couple of days ago now, and it was to I think somebody who was at university, if I recall rightly. And one of the things that we were talking about was the kind of difference between your standard corporate jobs, so things Mm -hmm. like investment banking and so on and so forth, where, you know, especially through university years, you have to get internship after internship, you need to have that CV. Mm -hmm. And the way that these big corporate firms recruit is by looking at that sort of experience as well as, you know, a few other things. But actually when it comes to, certainly to my mind, when it comes to coding, it's almost a more democratic experience where you could have, and do correct me if I'm wrong, you could have some kid from Bolton, where mm. I'm from, um, who's done a load of interesting stuff, has got you know a fantastic GitHub repository, mm. and says to somebody at Google, for example, forget all the corporate spiel. Here's what I've done. Go and have a look at it. Mm. First of all, is that right? And secondly, does that mean that for young coders, what they should be focusing on are you know a bunch of interesting side projects?
1: So I still think that co- the world of coding and tech has similar problems to the corporate world where in a lot of places it is a boys club. Right? It isn't as much as the corporate world is. I mean, mm. I'm, my first job was a commodity trader. Mm. So I did see the corporate world quite a bit with that. But you're right, there's more meritocracy within it. But the biggest thing for me is just looking at that passion, that fire where are your side projects where's Mm. your actual hustle yeah it's like anything it's when you say to someone um so do you like football yeah i like football who's your favorite team blah 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 who's your favorite player if they can't name you any players do they actually like it absolutely yeah do they actually like that club if they can't name a little bit about the history it's (laughs) it's actually sort of looking what's underneath the bonnet yeah and digging into do you actually like this or is this the job and i think one problem with us, as when I say us, I don't mean us two sat right here, mm. but with Muslims, that we are exceptional in certain areas, mm. um, in certain fields, and Alhamdulillah, it's amazing that we are—you know—high percentage are in great jobs like yourself, doctors, engineers. But we need to broaden our field. If we actually want to start to have the impact, if we want to normalise the conversation, if we want people to realise, yeah, look, we're just like you, although our food's a little bit better, uh, and we've got better bits. We were the original hipsters, yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: So so, yeah, we're having that. So if we actually want to do all these great things, have influence on society, we need Mm. to broaden our fields. We need to start getting more of Muslims into uh, the arts, into journalism, into literature, into coding, into design, design, we need to be seen in all aspects of society now we need to be seen as yes we're just the same just a little bit different as i said better food (laughs) but even that with being muslims we're not a homogenous monolithic group of people absolutely different cultures different nationalities we need to show the world and we can show the world by moving into these positions across the field you know i have a few people approach me who want to be coders who want to be designers and are fantastic but the family like no just be an engineer yeah nothing wrong with that but Mm. if we want to think big we need to have our actions that lead us to be able to think big and to put these plans into
0: place. I completely agree. It's, it's a really interesting note that you've hit on there. Mm. Thinking about you and all this you know, really impressive stuff that you've done, as well as all the impressive stuff that you are doing, mm. I want to kind of take the story back a bit, and, and we kind of you know we started off about you and your story. Mm. Where, where did you grow up?
1: I was born and raised in Manchester. Mm. I grew up just outside of Manchester, though, just in between Nutsford and Altrincham um schooled over here and since going to university i've managed to i've lived all around the world so i've lived in istanbul wow morocco new york miami san fran london and now back to manchester
0: not bad for a boy that grew up in manchester is it
1: it's all right but then it depends do you know something I, i find so tragic and this is just my personal opinion i've got a friend who I went to school with. So the last time I saw him was 1998, 99. He's working in his parents' chippy. He hasn't left. So since school, over 20 years, he he hasn't left. And for me personally, there's so much of the world to see, so much to learn, Mm. and to just stay, live and die in the same corner of the earth that you were born. For me, that's it's not fulfilling Mm. for some people that's what they want but for me there's so much to learn so much to see i know what they say learn read educate yourself travel you get rid of fascism racism all these things when you you see the world out there Mm. i myself have grown completely and it's amazing when i think of the boy that i was and the views that i had and i was really strict with them i was like no this is right (laughs) this is right but as you get older you travel you learn you see people who have a different viewpoint
0: it's amazing isn't it
1: it really is and I just think we're now living in an era where we're just sort of shoehorned into, right, once you do university, you need to get a corporate job, you need to do this, and then you need to get married. Yes, you do, but there's so much that you need to learn if you want to become a better, well-rounded individual. Mm. And especially when, as Muslims, we've got our back against the wall. Mm. We have a lot more pressure on us than other people. I'm sure a lot of your listeners will feel the same, that whenever anything happens it's always like oh so what are your thoughts about this Is like Bro, I don't even speak for myself. I've got multiple personalities, so I don't speak for 1.3 billion people. Yeah. But, you know, it's in the same way where I always jokingly say that. I just sort of love the fact that white people can do things, and it's fine, you know, as in, I'm not saying to my mates, so are you going to apologise for Sandro? Andrew? Are you going to apologise for Jimmy Savile? Yeah. No, that's all of you, isn't it? That's all of you. Yeah. So we, we really do have our backs against the walls, and with that, we need to become the people who are the well-travelled, the well-cultured, the well-educated people. Mm. We have to be the people who can reason and i find that really difficult to do at times yeah but i just think we've got a certain responsibility and for us everything is political because you look at our faces it's political
0: mm.
1: it's not like someone else can do things and it's fine there's politics with us yeah which is a burden that i know some people don't want but unfortunately i just believe that we need to be more than we are
0: i completely agree mm. i completely agree it's interesting that, you know, you talked before about the inspiration behind We Are Asif mm. and mental health uh, generally is not. I mean, I confess that I don't particularly understand mental health very well, but I think in particular, the Muslim community uh, and certainly the, you know, the, the Asian Muslim community doesn't particularly understand mental health very well. There is what seems like a dichotomy between Islam and mental health. Mm. Um And I think although the conversation has moved on slightly from that pure dichotomy, I still think, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, because you're somebody that's much more entrenched in the space Mm. than I am. Where do you think Muslims are at the moment in that mental health conversation? If you think about the scale of, you know, pure dichotomy, probably where we were about five years ago, um, to, you know, where you think we should be, where do you think we are on that scale at the moment?
1: Things are improving, but do you know until i went through my battles i was the same as a lot of asians i was like it's, it's fine what mm. my, my dad used to just say to me just have a paracetamol and if it's really bad just have an ibuprofen <laughs> <And> <laughs> yeah. I, well, Hasan Minhaj, he, he actually did a program on on mental health and he was saying that if when, whenever he was feeling down his dad just said pray pray and drink yeah <laughs> which is the typical response you get but you know so suicide is the biggest killer of men in the UK. Mm. Um, when you break down the groups within that, prison populations, PTSD, then Asians. Asians are the third biggest group of people wow. who take their own lives. Really? But then, again, there's a lot of politics and culture that comes into it. Yeah. People don't want it labeled as a suicide. Right. People say it's haram. Yeah. If you're ill, yeah. that's another question. You know, It's not something which is done in a straight, with your mindset being yeah. congruent with what is right and wrong also the older generation as well the older generation really suffer from depression Mm. and they don't know how to vocalize and articulate it so it's an even bigger problem in our culture because of the stigma because of what what is said because of the cultural implications the Mm. religious implications as well which when you actually know that you know it's not something that you do in a sane way yeah it's yeah there's a lot of education that needs to happen because there's a lot of help that needs to happen it's um you know, they say that the average suicide it affects 112 people. So one person takes their life; that's how many the ripple effect is. And within that group of people, that they're 65% more likely to take their own life. Wow! Um, so it's something that needs a lot of education. It needs a lot of shift in mindset. Mm. Um, and you know, inshallah, with what we're doing, I hope we can at least reach out to people and help some people with what we're doing.
0: Absolutely. You mentioned your personal struggles. Mm as far as you're comfortable, maybe explore a bit on that. And also, how are people supposed to react to the first signs of whether it's depression or some other kind of mental health issue? I mean, I'll give you an example. I had somebody reach out to me yesterday after a post I made on LinkedIn Mm. and said, look, you know, completely confidentially, I'm suffering from severe depression and, you know, your post really helped me and, and blah, blah, blah. The first thing that struck me was that I didn't know how to react. So, you know, when you think about physical problems, emergencies, we all know that we should know at least a bit of basic first aid. Mm. How are we supposed to react to things like that? Warning signs that we might see in other people. Um, you know, what are those warning signs? How should we react?
1: Well, this is the thing with mental health that everyone is different and it's so multifaceted and multi-layered. Mm. My friend who took his own life, we had one conversation where he said that he was not feeling well and he'd had enough. Huh. Unbeknown to me, this was something a lot deeper. Yeah. Uh, but no one saw anything coming. And the biggest thing that people can do is just ask people, Are you okay? Mm. No, are you actually okay? Yeah. Do you want to talk? And it's not about having the answers, it's just about letting people talk and mm. get what they want off out the chest. Yeah. And off their chest, yeah. That's the biggest thing we can do, which is actually just speak to people and say, Are you okay? No, are you actually okay? What's wrong? Mm. From there, there's a whole load of things they need to do. I mean, we we have a broken system when it comes to mental health. I know when I first went through my battles, I went to the GP and it took me eight months to get an appointment. Within that time, I'd already tried to take my own life. So luckily, I'm really crap at trying to take my own life. (laughs) Alhamdulillah. (laughs) But, you know, it's something that I talk openly about because at the time I didn't know what was going on and I I only saw one way out. But the biggest thing is just stop and speak to people and ask them how they are. Yes, there's a lot of things that need to be done after that. But that's the biggest thing that you can do. You know, as you say, physical health is obvious. Mm. Mental health isn't. And even from a corporate point of view, from a work point of view, you know, we're 50% more likely to take time off because of mental health. And more money comes out of the economy because of mental health so and physical health.
0: That's the Asian community. That,
1: that's just all. Generally. Generally. <clears throat> <clears throat> Yeah, I think 97 billion came out of the UK economy because of mental health last year, and 47 was out of the employers' pockets. So it's one of those things. Things are changing, which is good, but we have a broken system as well. The NHS, I think, it's wonderful. You know, um, I've had a cousin who passed away in Pakistan recently, and when you look at all the reasons why. If he was in England and they had the NHS, he wouldn't have passed away. Mm. We are so lucky to have it. Yes, it's broken. Yes, there's problems on the mental health side. It's it's not as good as we would want it to be, but we have that support. There are so many groups. There's the Samaritans out there. There's Mind, there's Calm. Um, there's Andy's Man Club as well, which is a fantastic initiative. There's so many things that we have out there that we can use, but it is a journey. It's not something that's going to change overnight, and it's something personally that I can say that with people who are suffering, It's not an overnight thing. It Mm. does take time, but there is light at the end of the tunnel.
0: What was your journey like in terms of the road to recovery, and what were the kind of seminal moments to help you?
1: I think trying to take my own life was quite seminal. (laughs) Well, I think it's actually hilarious now not to I mean this is triggering for some people but the first time I tried to throw myself underneath a tube but I completely mistimed it hit the driver's door second time I tried to hang myself and the hook which I used which was on the ceiling the ceiling collapsed when I oh god did so. <laughs> yeah I mean it's a funny story now I just lay on the floor just like going, oh, I'm so awful I can't, I'm so crap I can't even take my own life I was there, sat on the floor for three hours, and then I sort of knew I was all right because I ordered a delivery room. Mm. I got Lamborghini. So I was <laughs> like, I think I'm all right now. But you know, not to make light of it, I think it was my friends who also noticed that from somebody who had a certain character, that I just couldn't stop crying and I was going through all these things and eating like my family as well. Mm. It helped me to open up to a lot of family and friends about a lot of burdens that I had and thoughts that I had. Mm. But I definitely think the most seminal point within the journey was the second time I tried to take my own life because I knew I couldn't live like this and I had to do things to change. Yeah. It was a difficult journey and I had to do many things for it from changing my diet to sleeping to speaking to people, to therapists. And I think the biggest thing was just speaking more openly to family and friends. That was the thing that allowed me to do all the other things to get me there. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those. We, there are a lot of problems, especially within our community, because of how it's demonized. Mm. There's a lot of people who are suffering. And a simple conversation can do so much. It can start someone on that journey to recovery.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And in terms of the Islam element, did Islam play a role in your recovery at all? Or if there were people that are listening, um, that have some sort of mental health issue, whether they perceive it or whether they're just kind of second-guessing, what would your advice be from an Islamic perspective?
1: Do you know, I started reading the Quran a lot more. Mm. My sister told me to. I like For the first six months, I was like, what's this going to do? Mm. No, I don't need this. But starting to pray and a lot of people meditate, it was one of the elements that helped me. It wasn't fundamentally what did it. It was numerous things. Yeah, Speaking to people, therapy, changing my food, sleep. Yeah. But definitely praying was something that was part of the ingredients to my recovery. And as soon as I started doing that as well, I started reading a lot more. I started reading a lot more into Islam. And that's when I decided to do a master's as well. This is years ago. So I ended up doing a master's because of this in uh, history, specifically of the Indian subcontinent when the British were there. Nice. So... For me, yes, it was a gateway to other things, which was spirituality, Mm. reading, education at the time where I was at my lowest.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, you often get these, uh, you know, they're often absolute nonsense, but, you know, texts or like random bits of advice from Uncle, like, you know, read this 761 times or something. Yeah, in Uh, a minute. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. And um, that's a bunch of garbage. But in terms of, I always think that, religion and spirituality and especially if you've got mental health issues it's a very personal and intimate thing Mm. and i think that rather than being so prescriptive about islam Mm. when it comes to using it as an aid you know we should just let people explore what they want basically because i know for me for example my highest points of iman when i spend a lot of time with the quran that's Mm. just me for some people it's salah some people it's a lot of dua and things like that and i think that that subjectivity is just something that you should let people do
1: yeah definitely um one of the things in my research that i've noticed as well and from some of the focus groups that i've been involved in that belonging and community is a big part of someone's mental health mm. recently with some of the research we've been doing your job because it gives you purpose your relationships in terms of family or your partner and belonging and what islam does do it it Gives you that community. It helps you to belong to something which feels like bigger than you. Mm. Uh, you know, the Umar, you know, when you go into masjid. And that's a critical thing because communities is what's kept us alive as human beings. And it's one of the things that gives us purpose. But for me, it was slightly different that with all the reading that I was doing and all the grant as well, it made me want to read more about the history and know mm. the ins and outs. And then it also got me to start studying islam and when islam was at the forefront of science Mm. and i'm reading all about you know the famous mathematicians al-garizmi the famous muslim mathematician and you know from him the word algebra comes from which is something which i do so (laughs) it did something different to me it got me down that path of actually looking at the history learning more about it and with the spiritual alum side of it, but it was definitely one of the key things, but not the thing. Cause you, there's so many things that you need to do. It's multifaceted. It's multi-layered.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, moving on to the ai side of things which we touched on briefly you're somebody that's you know much more savvy on this whole space and much more insightful what do you think people should be aware of about ai they're probably not aware of or you know some interesting snippet about ai that you know people listening to this podcast can go away and share with people
1: firstly, it's not about the robots. The robots, if you speak to anyone from the AI community, as soon as you say robots, they're just like, oh, go away. (laughs) Um, AI is amazing what we can do. And people also, I do a lot of talks about AI, about mental health, and there's a lot of philosophy to it. You know, We're talking about the bigger questions of morals v. ethics just because we can, should we be doing this? Mm. What are the problems with it? But artificial intelligence, it can give us the answers to questions we never knew were possible. It can show us points of connection, that we never knew existed. It is the most incredible, powerful tool that we have at the moment. And there's a lot of people who think the world's first trillionaire will be an AI trillionaire. I mean, do we need a trillionaire? I don't think we do, but you know, this is the world that we live in. <laughs> yeah. But the discoveries, is what we can do, what we're starting to learn. But they, you know, on, on the flip side, the negateful side of it, that there's an AI race going on at the moment between China, Russia, mm. and America. It's scary. And it's also, this is another reason why we need more people in the world of AI, who don't come from the standard background, which is you know white middle class.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting that you say that.
1: Because the data is written. Yeah. By those people. I mean, I'm sure in the corporate world at the moment, diversity is a big word, and I hate that word, diversity. I think Riz Ahmed said it really well in one of his interviews, like diversity, it just feels like the sprinkling of the pepper or the (laughs) natto sauce. The main meal is the workforce, and then let's put a bit of diversity (laughs) on it. And it does feel like that, but for me, it's all about representation. As you know, we're we're a similar age, Mm. (laughs) very young. Um, (laughs) When we grew up, I don't know if you noticed it, but if we're talking Asians or Muslims, the only Asians or Muslims you ever saw were taxi drivers or they worked in a corner shop yeah that was it and i can talk to you about so many different films that i saw and those were the only asians asians were always portrayed as weak
0: 100 percent. yeah
1: and we've now got to sort of take ownership and we need to control the narrative which Mm. is again why i say we need more asians in all different fields and all different walks of life Mm. which film was i remember snatch was it snatch or lock stock and two smoking corner shop no, no, that's, no. Lockstop, <laughs> that's something completely different. Lock the Lockstock film. It was a great film, you know, it had lots of different characters from London. The only time you saw Asians, they were all wearing traditional dress mm. coming out of a wedding. Yeah. And that's what I think the world saw us at. And it's a case of, you know, that's what we've always been viewed at, but we need to take control of that narrative. We need to get more people into better positions and to, you know, more public life. Mm because it's not about diversity, it's about representation. I want to see people who look like me. Yeah. I want to see Muslims who might not be the best Muslims, but they're Muslims or might be very good Muslims. We want to see ourselves reflected in the stories we hear. Yeah, And it's great. Now, it's different to when we grew up. you know, you've got Riz Ahmed, Hassan Minaj. Um, you've got quite a few mainstream Asian actors and voices. Mm. And power to them. We need more of them though. Absolutely, yeah. People need to be able to see themselves reflected in the stories that they see because the narrative has always been that we are X, Y, or Z. Never what is popular, never what is right. There's no films about Asians and mainstream. You know, Slumdog Millionaire one or two, but that's the bigger thing and this is what we need to realise and this is what we need to be fighting for.
0: Mm, 100%. In terms of your kind of AI community, I guess, what are some of the interesting things that you've... They may not seem... Incredible to you, but to like an average person in terms of projects that are out there. I mean, one of them is yours. As I said before, I'm always blown away whenever I hear the description of what mm. we are asked for doing. Um, what about other stuff that you've heard in the AI community that you think is quite cool and therefore, by extension, I'll think is absolutely incredible?
1: I've got a good friend of mine, AI patient, who's doing work within the medical field. There are a lot of medical advances happening using AI. Mm. It's fantastic now that. They're saying that AI is better at predicting tumours and cancer. Um, yes, it's not mainstream, as in it's not going to be unleashed on an entire population. Yeah, But think if you could find the warning signs or you could find those signs early on, mm. how amazing would that be? To anyone who's ever lost someone, if they could have found those warning signs, I think that's incredible. Also, there's incredible advances going on at the moment in agriculture as well. We're starting to use AI to look, you know, how where's best to start planting certain seeds? Where can we get the most out of this crop? Yeah, It's really starting to help solve some of the world's biggest problems. But on the flip side of that, as I said, there's also some absolute evil coming out of it. Mm. There's the algorithm which is being used by American justice system, which is... Basically giving black people longer sentences than white people wow. because of the AI and the data that it uses. There's also AI being used by a certain company looking at which communities to displace for resources in Africa. Wow. So this then leads us to the other question, which is how do you regulate AI, which is something which I'm all for. But our problem at the moment, if we can't regulate Facebook, mm. who in essence are controlling our democracy, how are we going to regulate AI?
0: It's interesting you say that because you touched on a point earlier about how you know we need more representative voices basically in AI and in lots of other fields, mm. and this is a great example of that. And it seems to me that you said that you're up for regulation in the AI space, mm. but when you think about all the problems that are there, I mean, look at Facebook as an example. If you watch that deposition of Mark Zuckerberg, You had like dinosaurs interviewing Mark Zuckerberg that didn't really understand tech generally. It was embarrassing. It was embarrassing. embarrassing. And it goes back again to a wider point that you were making, which is that we need representative voices in all the spheres. And if the people at the top of politics are old, white, male people, then that's not going to help anyone, is it? It isn't,
1: but then again... Pretty Patel, Sajid Javid, true. they're not that, but they're just, they're the exact same voices.
0: This is true, but they are, I see them as a kind of extension of that, you know, white old male community, or at least they want to be an extension of it. Do
1: you know who they remind me of? Do you remember, goodness gracious me? The Coopers. <laughs> they are the Coopers. Yeah. They're, I mean, absolutely nothing for their communities that they represent. Yeah. And there was an interesting thing um, I read in the Guardian, funnily enough, mm. just saying some of the policies that they adhere to, mm. they wouldn't have been allowed in the country yeah. if they, you know, their parents were subjected to those policies. Yeah, it's yeah, we live in such strange times, and divisive times, mm. where ten years ago we would have thought, great, we've got some Asians, you know, on, yeah. on the yeah. front. But they're just part of the same problem.
0: Absolutely, we could talk about that for a long time. I think, Yeah, but, but let's not. Yeah. In terms of the kind of closing stages of this, because I'm just conscious of the time, and I know you need to get away to do a live radio show. <laughs> um,
1: that makes me sound really popular, but I can
0: the lab. going back to the whole thing about startups. I mean, we talked earlier about you know your advice generally is mm. is don't do it. What's your journey been like? Because, or certainly you mentioned it to me before, that you've been working on this code for a long time, mm. uh, about best part of 10 years, is that right?
1: Well, the algorithm I've been working on for about eight years. Mm. The co- I mean, with the research that we have undertaken, the product has pivoted about five times. Right. So what it started out as, it's literally night and day. It's completely different. It's just a lot bigger. It's something which... It was supposed to be a project that I'd leave work for a year or so. Okay. Set it up, then go back into work. It's now my life.
0: Interesting you say pivoting, Mm. um, because pivoting is something that I see really good founders doing often Mm. um, because what it means fundamentally is that they accept that what they started out on, wasn't the right thing or certainly wasn't the most the biggest or the most scalable or or whatever metric you're using and they've accepted that and they've found another way using the data that they've achieved from their Mm. their current thing in terms of your advice to people who are doing something what do you think are the ingredients of a successful founder a successful startup let's take a an avatar of somebody who they have an idea they work in a full-time job what do you think they should be doing
1: Stay in that full-time job. (laughs) Actually, I'd say the first thing would be to stay in that full-time job. If they are a coder, brilliant. Mm. If they're not, they need to get a prototype made. It can be a clickable prototype. So you can marvel app... Uh, not Marvel, the comic films, there's a great company, Marvel, or Sketch, or InDesign, they can start to make their own prototype in their spare time. Okay, They can then start using that prototype to speak to people. Mm. They can start trying to get data to see how people interact with it. Is this something that people want? Opinions, everyone's got them. Ideas, everyone has them. You're nothing special with an idea. Mm. No one cares about your idea. People only care about your execution and your hustle. So if you have a full-time job and you've got a great idea, research it. Is this an actual problem that needs solving? Mm. Or am I going to develop something that's going to be used in a different way? If it is, pivot, show the story, show that journey. Mm. It's just amazing the amount of people who speak to me and say they want money for this, that, and the yeah. other. It's like, so what have you done? Yeah. Nothing. So why is someone going to give you money? Mm. Why is somebody going to give you money? Do you think people are stupid just to hand over <laughs> hundreds of thousands of cash? Yeah. But the biggest thing they need is the hustle. Mm. They need the hustle and the research and the prototype. And they can do that all. with. They can use free tools which are available on the internet. They can read in their spare time, you know how to make a prototype, but that's what you want to see if you've got an idea what you're doing about it, yeah, don't talk to people because people get spoken to all the time about yeah. ideas, yeah, you need that credibility
0: and also the people that you speak to, they will say it's a good idea because they probably don't want to hurt your feelings as well, <laughs> but actually, if you ask them to you know vote with their wallet, that's a very different proposition mm. and then if you then, by extension, go away from your circle of friends to complete strangers and they are also voting with their wallet. That's, I think, kind of when you know you might be onto onto something interesting. I speak to a lot of people and one of the common themes that I'm starting to see is that they're trying to build something that's really big and really complex. And what they say is that I need the money to build out even just the basic MVP. What do you say about that?
1: You don't need money to build a basic one you can build to to build a complex one. You build something basic, mm. build it basic, use the data to then grow it. yeah people are not going to give you money to create an amazing app that's going to compete with whatever the market leader is mm. you do it in stages the first product that you put out the first mvp you should be embarrassed by it yeah. i will not tell my peer group about my app when it's out <laughs> i will not tell them because i will be embarrassed by it yeah. but with me i know that within six months of a year's time inshallah you know we do the right things yes we will make mistakes but you know as long as we're quick to react and we work on the data in a year's time we will have something magnificent out there mm. this looks great the ux is fantastic it's interactive it's intuitive but the first thing you have out, you should be. If you're not embarrassed by it, you're doing something wrong.
0: I completely agree with and that.
1: It's all about the research. Google Campus. I used to go speak to startups and advise them on what to think about from a tech side. Of, to, from a tech side, the amount of people that had a good idea but hadn't researched it, or then the amount of people who had a great idea, researched it, but then didn't UX test it unbelievable mm. research is the most critical thing you need to know how people are going to interact with your product yeah then again you do get people who come out with stupid ideas like they're going to build a product to compete with amazon <laughs> enjoy bro. <Yeah>. enjoy <laughs> good enjoy. look with that, <laughs> that. Yep. tell me how it goes yeah yeah but that's the biggest thing research research and hustle
0: fantastic and um just to finish off tell us the anecdote about how you came up with um the we are asif name
1: Uh, okay so the original product that we had it was a suicide grievance community so Mm. as i mentioned um if you know someone who's close to you has passed away due to suicide you're 65 percent more likely to take your own life also the grievance process is completely different so that was the first product and every name that i thought of the acronym was something uh a little bit crude so the first name was suicide loss app Mm. the acronym was slap (laughs) then there was suicide help information team the acronym is shit (laughs) and then asif came to me and asif stood for after suicide support information forum okay we pivoted away from that so we wanted to keep asif within the name if we could Mm. because we really liked it It was our like the fact that that was our origins so Mm. we thought we are asif also another side to this I bought all the domain names that I could at Asif.org, Asif.org.uk. Asif.com was unavailable and there was no company registered as Asif.com. About six months into this, somebody said, Have you looked at Asif.com? I was like, the last time I checked, there was nothing there. Have a look. It was a harami site.
0: It was oh a harami late night site. I was like, oh right, we definitely need to
1: change the name. So it's now it's now we are asifcom Right. And also um discussed this before though. It's like it plays into my politics a little bit. Mm. We were discussing before about corporate law and how we've been brought up and the information that we've been fed. You'd always look at a company called Charles Croxford mm. as regal, as mm. a British institution, then to something called Abdul Khan. Yeah. You think that's a takeaway <laughs> or just a dodgy solicitors. Yeah, yeah. And it played into my politics of wanting to sort of reclaim that heritage and trying to make things from our community more acceptable and more yeah. commonly known. Mm. Interestingly enough, the first time I pitched Asif, somebody said, well, people might not use it because it's an Asian name and they don't want to use it. And I said to him two things, should I not wear Fred Perry because I'm not white? <laughs> Am I not allowed to listen to Rolling Stones because I'm not white? Yeah. And he just looked all flummoxed. And then I said, if somebody's not going to use this because it's an Asian name, they're called racist. <laughs> and... To hell with them yeah <laughs> but yeah it's about reclamation as well
0: no i really like that
1: so yeah inshallah i mean there's a lot of hard work a lot of mistakes to be made but one of the biggest advice that i'd give to anybody looking to start is have the hustle and just be prepared to be humbled mm. i thought i knew what i was doing i literally I've made so many mistakes and I've had to learn quickly. Um, I've changed a lot. I've grown up a lot. My style of doing things has changed because it's become more accepting rather than in this viewpoint of everyone has to be at this certain standard, Mm. this certain level. It really humbles you. And the thing is, if you want to do anything that makes a difference, you're going to be stressed. You're going to have to make a lot of sacrifices. But. We now live in an age where people can grow up with a mobile phone in one hand and a laptop in another hand. You've got access to all this information. When we wanted to learn something, we had to go to the library yeah. and flick through encyclopedias Absolutely. and books. <laughs> there is so much possibility out there, but there has to be sacrifice if you want to do something that's going to do that's that's going to make a difference.
0: Fantastic. Well, on that note, you know it's been really, really interesting to hear all your insights so far, and um, I really hope that we are as if. Does incredibly well, as I'm sure it will, inshallah. And uh, yeah, next time we have you on, inshallah, we'll be talking about all the progress you've made, inshallah.
1: Inshallah, definitely. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed this as well.
2: All right. Take care. As-salamu alaykum alaykum alaykum. Alaykum. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, IslamicFinanceGuru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, Asalaamu Alaikum.